A partial ceiling collapsed Wednesday night during a concert in the venue's main room injured three people. It was about a 20 by 20 piece of ceiling. They have to get their sprinkler system completely repaired, but they can't do that until the ceiling's repaired. So once that's done, the sprinkler contractor will be back in here to replace the broken pipes and be able to go forward from there. First Avenue in downtown Minneapolis has become a haven for fans of live music since 1970. The former bus depot has become iconic, known for its black brick exterior and more than 500 painted stars. Every year, hundreds of thousands of fans safely enter and exit the building. But any facility that sees that much foot traffic for that long is occasionally going to see some cause for concern. Last episode, we recounted First Avenue's 2004 bankruptcy and subsequent change in ownership. Well, the bankruptcy was probably the biggest threat to the club's existence, First Avenue has suffered several smaller mishaps since then, including a small fire in 2006 and a partial ceiling collapse in 2015. The ceiling collapse happened during a show by Canadian rock band Theory of a Dead Man. It was a scary situation. In this episode, we'll find out what happened that night and talk about other safety issues that are more interpersonal than infrastructural. These issues affect all fans, but especially those who are LGBTQ plus and or music fans of color. I'm Cecilia Johnson, and this is The Current Rewind, the podcast putting music's unsung stories on the map. In this season of Rewind, we're zooming in on several important dates in the history of First Avenue, one of the Twin Cities and the country's greatest live venues. To help us out and to showcase the breadth of First Avenue's musical history, most of these episodes have featured a different guest host. This time, we are lucky to have Sun Young Shin. She's a writer, teacher, and body worker who lives in Minneapolis. In 2016, she edited A Good Time for the Truth, an anthology of essays on race in Minnesota. And this year, she joined the Current Rewind team as a scriptwriter and this episode's host. Thanks, Cecilia. I'm Sun Young Shin, and I'm a poet and writer here in the Twin Cities. I went to college in St. Paul in the early 90s, and as a young person during and after college, when I lived in Uptown in Minneapolis, I spent a lot of time going to concerts and danceteria nights at First Avenue and shows at the 7th Street Entry. Having grown up in the Chicago area, I spent my teenage years at places like Medusa's, Chicago's most famous all-ages club, and other punk locales like Wax Tracks, a store and a label that opened in 1973 in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago. I didn't know much about Minneapolis, let alone its music scene, when I arrived for college, but I quickly found out how lucky I was to be in the same city as First Avenue and 7th Street. Club safety was certainly an issue in those days, but few of us who didn't work at clubs could have predicted what it would look like in the 21st century. Randy Hawkins, who has worked for First Avenue since 1989, has a simple definition of club security. Security are just is basic safety of people behaving in a way that isn't going to get anybody else hurt or themselves. 
Whether he's working as a stage manager or door person, Randy is and always has been focused on shaping a safe environment. Working front door is deciding who who did and who didn't come in. If someone's too drunk to come in, things like that, or too aggressive at the shows, whatnot, we're trying to deal with that situation. Sometimes it was also letting informers know what they were doing wasn't safe, um, which happened periodically, not too often. And keeping, like, as far as, like, barricade security, making sure that no one in the audience did anything that was going to affect or harm someone on stage. So kind of keeping an eye on how everybody's operating in a particular moment. Most of the time, people behave safely and sensibly, but anything can happen. Hawkins told us about some moments of dubious performer judgment. Jumping off the stage, uh, so stage diving in general, climbing things that weren't really meant to be climbed, the PA, cabling, whatnot, anything uh, projectile from stage towards the audience, also obviously a terrible idea. And the entry was the same way. I was did sound the entry for for the 90s, basically. And uh, usually it was fine. Now and then someone would do something just where you're like, well, we're going to have to stop this right now because you're going to hurt somebody. Corey from National Pussy decided to blow flames into a sold-out entry audience, which was a terrible idea. Those guys had a few episodes like that. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, not this again. Theory of a Dead Man didn't bring any pyrotechnics, just their usual mainstream rock. On August 12, 2015, First Avenue safety protocols were tested when part of the main room ceiling collapsed during a Theory of a Dead Man show, causing an evacuation of the building with three audience members sustaining non-serious injuries. There were some minor injuries. That night, First Avenue general manager Nate Krantz told the current writer, Andrea Swenson, that a piece of plaster had, quote, somehow separated from the beams in the ceiling and fell, taking out the sprinkler pipes, which obviously compounded the problem, because then we had water going everywhere, end quote. This describes the scene in video footage that fans had posted to Instagram that night. According to Krantz, it wasn't the roof that fell in, just the ceiling. So, like, when you say ceiling collapse, that's what happened. But the ceiling is like a plaster lath ceiling that you can't really get up and inspect. The roof was what we end up having to replace every 10 years. Unfortunately, there was a handful of people that got hurt, but it was a well-timed fight broke out. And when that happens, the other customers have a tendency to disperse. And that had happened right in that spot just before. I wasn't there, but there had been a, some kind of fight in that area and then they cleared the area and that's when it happened and that's why there was nobody staying there would have been seriously hurt when it happened that was like it was luck who foresees that kind of thing coming our producer cecilia johnson was actually in the audience that night but not in the main room she was next door at the seventh street entry watching minnesota bands what tyrants and stereo confession For this episode, she caught up with Max Tamander, who played in Stereo Confession. Max gave us the full story from their perspective as they and their band experienced the unfolding events of the evening. 
So we were there. It was our tour kickoff. Um, we've been planning a tour for months. We had a few shows with the other local band, What Tyrants, um, planned for like Madison, Chicago. And um, so it was a big kickoff. We each booked an opener. They picked Modern Mod. We picked Fury Things. And so we were just really excited about the night. It was it was a night to get everyone under one roof before we hit the road and head east. Um so, I mean, everything was going smoothly. Every opener played a fantastic set. What Tyrants killed it. And we were the final band. So we got on stage, started playing our show. And I believe it was like four songs in where the red lights at First Avenue started to flash. But it wasn't just like one. It was all of them. Like, it, it was unlike anything I'd seen before because it felt like the building might be on fire or something. And I remember the sound person then talking to me through the monitor as we're playing a song, which is so not normal. So we all kind of got confused, and then we just stopped playing. And then we start to notice that they're saying, like, we need you to get off stage, like, immediately. Like, we have to get everyone outside now. There wasn't much communication about what was going on, but the way that First Avenue staff handled it that day, I would say was just very comforting in a way, because you could tell that they took their job seriously, and they knew what they had to do in this emergency. Yeah, I remember being very confused, because I could hear your vocals in, like, you know, the mix that was coming back out to the crowd, but I could also hear some random voice, and it was the sound person who was, like... Totally bizarre. I know. Had you ever been involved in a crisis situation like that, either as a performer or as an audience member? No, definitely not. And it's the kind of thing where you maybe read about it on blogs, like stage collapses or ceiling caves in, but it's not, like, the kind of thing that you think is going to happen in your small community or your your town. You don't expect that kind of thing. Um, and I think it was Theory of a Dead Man next door. Yeah, but I remember leaving the venue, leaving the entry, walking out into the street or whatever, and not knowing what had gone on. And it's only because I think I was talking to you and you had, like, the word from First Ave staff that it was a ceiling collapse. But I think most people didn't actually know what was going on. Like, how did you figure out what was going on? Honestly, I was just as confused as everyone else, and I think what ended up happening, um, we had uh, Noah Pastor playing in our band at the time, and if I remember correctly, he had kind of asked someone working at the club, um, one of the managers, like what was going on, and he kind of spread the word to us. But it was a really freaky scene to walk out on the street to, because I remember there being like fire trucks, ambulances, police cars, just all up and down the street, and people just kind of crowding on the sidewalk. So you don't really know what's going on. But um, luckily, there was no fatal injuries or serious injuries, as far as I remember. Yeah, no, I think everybody made it out on the other side okay. Yeah. But the cops were like... Everybody, if you're not hurt, move down the street. Like, get out of here. And you and the rest of the band were like, our gear's in there. (laughs) Yeah, we're not leaving our life behind. Like, uh, let me back into the club. (laughs) And it was like probably 10, 30, 11 at night. So it's dark out. And yeah, we're just really thrown off by that. But in retrospect, I, I understand why what was going on and why they were doing, why they were pushing everyone back and making sure that everyone was safe. 
Me too. How long did you end up having to stay there, though? We probably stayed there for another 45 to an hour um, because we had to wait for everything to be cleared. And so I remember hanging out there for a while. Luckily, there were friendly faces downtown. People were starting to come down and, like, interview people that were at the show. There were people to talk to, but um, kind of an awkward situation because you're just standing in the street not really sure what to do. While, like I said, your life is inside, your gear, your guitars, your drums and whatnot. The accident was on the 12th, and that night the Current's Jay Gabler started writing about it for the local Current blog. Last night, legendary Minneapolis club First Avenue experienced a partial collapse of the main room's interior ceiling. The main room was hosting approximately 750 fans for a show by Canadian hard rock band Theory of a Dead Man. The adjoining 7th Street entry was hosting a tour kickoff event for local bands What Tyrants and Stereo Confession that was attended by approximately 150 fans. Both spaces were immediately evacuated when the incident occurred shortly after 10 o'clock p.m., about 15 minutes into Theory of a Dead Man's set. First Avenue General Manager Nate Kranz told the Star Tribune that the club will be closed Thursday with an inspection plan for Thursday morning. Planned Friday shows by Gin Strings in the main room and Sam Cassidy, Charlie Van Stee, and Wild Age in the entry have been canceled, according to the venue's website. Carrie Levin reports that city staff began working with First Avenue staff at 7 o'clock a.m. to determine the cause of the collapse and to secure permits to take down the rest of the ceiling, which a spokesperson for the city inspector believes to be the original ceiling that was installed when the venue was first constructed as a bus station in 1936. Quote, We're working with city inspectors and structural engineers to discover the reason this happened and how best to reopen safely, said First Avenue owner Dana Frank in a Thursday morning press release. Quote, our thoughts and hearts are with those who were injured last night. First Avenue thanks our dedicated and professional staff for their quick response to the situation and the Twin Cities community, which has offered an outpouring of support for First Avenue staff and patrons. End quote. Theory of a Dead Man couldn't talk with us for this podcast, but the week of the collapse, they released a statement. Here's an abridged version. Quote, As some of you may be aware or may have witnessed, there was a partial ceiling collapse during our show last night at the First Avenue Music Venue in Minneapolis. As with all our shows, our primary concern is for the safety of all involved, our fans, our crew, the venue staff, and anyone and everyone else who may be in attendance. Our sincerest thanks go out to the First Avenue staff, the Minneapolis Fire Department, the paramedics, and all the other wonderful people who lent their swift assistance in helping others during the aftermath. We wish First Avenue a quick turnaround in reopening the doors of their legendary venue. First Avenue recovered quickly thanks to its devoted staff and the club reopened on August 28, 2015 for a show by Minnesota rap crew Girl Party, which featured Lizzo, Sophia Aris, Monchita, and DJ Shannon Blowtorch. Reviewing the show for the local current blog, Andrea Swenson reported, quote, In the time since the collapse, the remainder of the ceiling had been completely deconstructed and cleaned up increasing the height of the room by several feet and exposing the building's support beams, piping, and ventilation system. Our staff, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget 
how professionally they handled it in such a difficult situation and really worked their tails off in the days afterwards too. But, you know, it was unfortunate and now we don't have a plaster ceiling. It came down, it's not going back up. Any older club building has a lot of personality and holds a wealth of memories. Steve McClellan, one of First Avenue's former general managers, and Leanne Weimar, its former director of marketing, weren't completely shocked when the building showed its age. When you get to that hole, I think it's so funny, you've got that ceiling caving in as a big deal. Well, you know, that was a big deal happening for 30 years. I'm not surpri- I'm surprised it didn't fall in 10 years earlier. Oh, yeah. Though it was improvised and precarious, Steve and Leanne are proud of the environment they helped create at the club from the late 70s to the 2000s. We gave people a safe place to work and play and develop their skills, which a lot of people did. When when I say we held that place together with bubble gum and spit, I'm not kidding. Duct these, tape. These Don't kid, forget yeah, the duct tape. These kids picked up blowtorches and started welding the first time in their lives and built you know, build stages and things. It was amazing, all these young people, and it was great. Ultimately, live music is about getting a lot of people together in a small space. We've just been talking about what that means in terms of infrastructure. More recently, we've been thinking about what that means for viral transmission. And in recent years, crowds at music venues have also become a target for angry people with guns. Before COVID-19 paused live shows, Mass shootings were becoming more and more common at music venues, especially across Europe and the U.S. In 2016, tragedy struck the Miami nightclub Pulse Orlando on Sunday, June 12th. A 29-year-old man who lived in Fort Pierce, Florida, targeted the gay nightclub on a Latin dance night, killing 49 people and wounding 53 others. I have friends who lost friends there, um, I had been to Orlando before, and so there was a this very personal connection to the city. And a lot of just the people, the pictures, right, of, of the victims, um, I kept seeing. I mean, these were people that I absolutely could have seen myself going out to clubs that could with. Have been you. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And Minneapolis-based Honduran-American poet Roy Guzman, who grew up in Miami, decided to address the Orlando shootings in a public, artistic way. They wrote Restored Mural for Orlando, a poem and chapbook that was originally published in Public Pool and republished on NPR's Latino USA. On Guzman's website, they explained why they wrote the poem. My friends lost friends there. Families were torn apart. Not only did it target a space already marginalized, but the majority of the people we lost were queer Latinxes. I knew that as a writer, it was important for me to respond to this tragedy in a way that could convey my resistance against this type of violence and serve as an expression of life affirmation, that I am still here, that I can do something. We have put this chapbook with the intention to raise funds to help the direct victims of this tragedy and to support Pride Lines, a youth organization in Miami that provided me with the crucial space to figure out my queer identity when I was a teenager. Many of us are missing live music this year. 
Clubs, whether live music venues or bars with dance floors, are places where people, strangers, can come together in the universal rituals of music, movement, and escape from the daily grind of work and other responsibilities. Ideally, they should be safe places for everyone, but Guzman told us about having to navigate safety as a young, queer Latinx person in America. This podcast season has focused on the history of First Avenue, but as we look to the future of First Avenue and live music generally, it's essential to think about what it means to create safer spaces, especially for members of communities who have had to fight for inclusion. My experiences at the club almost always depend on who's with me. Uh, If the music is great and the people I'm with like to dance, then the dancing just happens. It feels natural. It feels organic. Other times I'm with people too shy to dance or move to the music. I might be the one too shy to dance, depending on the night, the venue, and of course the crowd. But that being said, the question of safety is one I've always had to navigate ever since I was a teenager, sneaking into clubs without an ID. I never got a fake ID. I relied instead on my persuasion skills, Mm. and I like to believe my looks. (laughs) I asked Guzman about community and club going. Queer and trans people, especially Black, Indigenous, POC, queer and trans people, have always had a very tenuous relationship to safety. As a category, safety wasn't made for us. It wasn't made um, with us in mind. So we've had to define it for ourselves, I find. And, And how this plays out, I think, for me, looking at experiences... And of course, memories, I'm thinking about like looking for one another, um, looking after one another, making sure everyone we came out with is accounted for at the end of the night, Um, checking out the bathrooms, for instance, making sure people can safely walk or drive home. The ecosystem of the queer club has always depended on how we tip our performers And our bartenders, Mm -hmm. how we navigate boundaries for people still in the closet, for instance, watching out for our drinks, and more importantly, letting loose. (laughs) Tragically, the Pulse Massacre was not the first high-profile mass shooting at a nightclub or live music venue, either in the U.S. or internationally. In 2015, attackers killed 90 people during an Eagles of Death Metal show at the Bataclan in Paris. Roy Guzman visited the 11th arrondissement, home of the Bataclan, about a year and a half later. So it it had been very recent, and there was this air of, like, you don't go there because, you know, it's almost like a memorial site, or that's Mm. the sort of air that it got. But I believe the venue has reopened. You know, unlike the post-nightclub that became this memorial site, I was reading recently about some of the victims and how they still feel like, you know, just a couple years later, they feel like society and the government continue to play this role of telling them that grief has a very specific time frame Mm. and that they should move on. We talked about the increased vigilance these days for people who have been targeted by racism, xenophobia, homophobia, and gun violence. So when I go to clubs, I have, you know, told people that you have to, you know, it's like I look around me 
and this is something that you do anyway, right, as a mm-hmm. queer trans person of color. But I think in after the nightclub shooting, there was a very direct assault of people like me. And that, I think, is what changed. So many people end up losing their lives. Gun violence continues in this country. And this government, with impunity, continues to sort of leave open access to people Mm -hmm. who shouldn't have these Mm -hmm. um, weapons. Mm -hmm. So we asked Nate Kranz, First Avenue's current general manager, how the recent increase in gun violence has affected First Avenue. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's awful. And of course, it informs our business. And we are way tighter with security now. Unfortunately, in the, the, the current environment in our country, guns are a big part of it. We do our best to make everybody understand that they're not welcome at our businesses. You know, you're a little limited. To, you can have your sign. You can have that. But that's why we do pat-downs. That's why we have security at literally every spot anybody could try and enter a, a venue. And we also work very diligently with the artists in advance before they even come into town um, to go over security plans to make sure that here's what we're planning on doing, but we want to know what else. Like, have you had any problems? Is there anything we can expect? Would you prefer if we use wands? Like, how, how do you want to go about this? And just really to trying to make sure that we can do everything in our power to make the experience safe, fun, and gun-free. On October 2nd, 2017, the day after a man killed 59 people and injured hundreds more at Route 91 Harvest Festival in Las Vegas, I went to a concert at First Avenue. Not all of the ticket holders did. I remember lots of my friends and coworkers who had tickets skipping the show, and the room felt pretty empty. Angel Olsen was headlining, but... I don't remember much about the music, to be honest. What I remember is staying on the perimeter of the club, hanging behind pillars and other people. I remember that my friend Eleanor and I left early. We took the train to a late-night happy hour spot and just sat at the bar, processing. Over the next several weeks, things started to feel back to normal, with a shadow of what-if lingering in the corners. I could not stop clocking exit routes and odd behavior. But all of that came to a halt when the coronavirus pandemic shut down big gatherings in March 2020. I can't wait to step back into a concert. I feel like a lot of others are feeling the same way, but I'm all too aware that we're going to have to do something about this lack of safety that existed way before March. Of course, in the middle of a pandemic, it feels strange to think up strategies for being in large groups. But a commitment to taking care of ourselves and our loved ones might be more important than ever. I love the way Roy Guzman describes care, quote, looking after one another, making sure everyone we came out with is accounted for at the end of the night, making sure people can safely walk or drive home. Unquote. My question is, what does that look like while we're away from the club?
This episode of The Current Rewind was hosted by Sun Young Shin and me, Cecilia Johnson. It was produced by me and Jesse Weiza and scripted by Sun Young Shin. Marisa Morseth is our research assistant and Jay Gabler is our editor. Our theme music is the song Hive Sound by Icetep. And this episode was mixed by Johnny Vince Evans. If you enjoyed this episode or found it interesting, please pass it on to a music fan in your life or rate and review The Current Rewind on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to access a transcript of this episode, go to thecurrent.org rewind. And if you have any feedback on this episode or the season as a whole, please feel encouraged to reach out via rewind at thecurrent.org. We just have one full episode left of this season of Rewind, and then it's back to the drawing board. So if you have any thoughts or ideas for future seasons, now is the time to share them. The current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's The Current. <laughs>